This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And which buildings are worth saving? This question comes up a lot and not just because of scandals like the Corkman's pub that was illegally demolished or the Palace Theatre, which many people fought so hard to save. And tomorrow night, a panel of people passionate about architecture are going to be speaking about this and getting together to ponder whether we have the balance right in Melbourne when it comes to heritage protection and urban renewal. And questions like, is it inevitable that as cities grow, older buildings must make way for the new? One of those people will be Collingwood Arts Precinct CEO, Marcus Westbury. And uh, it's really great to have you back on Triple R, Marcus. Good morning. And um, I mean, you cut your teeth a long time ago uh, at Renew Newcastle, which you founded and it was all about, you know, urban revitalisation and the like. And I wonder... Um, your thoughts on how important it is to continue to keep looking at architectural protections as we as we our cities change. Yeah, look, I mean, I've come at this from a few different angles. Like right now, I'm I'm working on a big project, which is the old Collingwood TAFE site in uh, in Johnson Street, which is uh, you know it's got a big her- grand Art Deco heritage listed facade, and it's a bunch of great old buildings. And a big part of the reason why we're creating this art precinct there is to preserve that and, and give new life to it. Uh, and that's a big project. It's um it's you know it's a lot of money and a lot of time to to get that working and then at the other end of the spectrum I've worked in some very um, you know grassroots uh, low budget projects like the Renew projects which are really about getting into buildings and doing as much as you can as quickly as possible so I think there's you know for, for coming at it from both ends I think there's a really interesting balancing act you've got to strike and I think the big challenge is how do you balance her- heritage with being able to use buildings and find uses for them you know and I think um, that the in an ideal world you have heritage as this living breathing thing where that means that buildings are being activated and used all the time and sometimes i think we we tend to fall into this sort of trap where we take a handful of buildings over there and we sort of you know we we, we sort of freeze them and, and preserve them in eternity and they, they're hard to use and then at the other end of the spectrum the day-to-day spaces that we sort of live and breathe and, and work in um often get knocked down and make way for you know pretty ugly apartment blocks that are spat out of a spreadsheet somewhere and i you know the, the balancing act between those i think is 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 tricky but something we need to keep working on. And heritage can be a really emotional issue for people. Often people have a connection to a building because they might drive past it on the way to work every day, might not have even been in there, but see it as as something in their urban landscape that they see as worth protecting. How how well do we strike that balance in Melbourne between retaining old buildings for the sake of, of I guess, keeping some of our architectural heritage and ensuring that they're used in a, in a good and, and useful way? Well, I should say, I mean, uh, while I am critical of some decisions you know governments have made over the years in melbourne i think it's fair to say that melbourne does it better than most most australian cities uh, i think the balancing act here is is a little bit better certainly than new south wales and certainly if you go up to if you go up to brisbane try to find much of the original sort of character of brisbane there and it's not really there anymore so i think melbourne's done a reasonable job of maintaining that balance of its of its character but there's a big challenge now which i think is the sheer pace of change you know like the sheer rapid transformation particularly of the inner city uh, in the inner city and in the inner city suburbs where you're just looking at incredible residential development coming in and, you know, you're sort of having within a, you know, five or ten year period the sort of the level of change that took place over 50 years before. And I feel like we're almost in a bit of a, um, you know, the, the time lag of, you know, we're not, we're not, moving fast enough to think about what the consequences of that will be. And so certainly where I'm where I'm working now in Collingwood, you stand up in the top floors of some of the buildings, you look out the windows, and there are cranes going up everywhere, you know, and the sheer scale and pace of that development, I wonder whether 
to what extent people are thinking about what that's going to mean in terms of character, in terms of heritage, just in terms of places for people to work and play and live and all of those things that make a good neighbourhood. Uh, you know, it's all well and good to sort of say, yes, we want more residential development in the city, which I actually think is a good thing. But um, if you don't think about where those people are, what they're going to do and, and how they're going to be and what's going to, that's going to mean for the neighbourhood, uh, you know, we risk it being too late. Yeah, and I think, I mean, a lot of that drive for, you know, urban housing is because it's near employment and yeah. also the hope that the urban growth boundary can can one day be set and yeah. <laughs> and we can keep those kind of peri-urban areas for, for agriculture and the like. But, I mean, is there anybody with an overall oversight, do you think? I mean, it, I suppose it comes down to the planning minister to kind of have some sort of vision for the way inner suburban areas develop. Yeah, and look, uh, you know, the planning minister in Collingwood is also the local member, and I, I certainly know over there he's quite invested in in what's with Richard Wynne, who's quite invested in what's taking place, and I think he sort of sees the challenges. Uh, the question is, you know, whether the the bureaucracy and the government can respond fast enough when the pace of change is just so quick, you know. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, ultimately it is a question for government to to work out how to plan for that. But I, I don't think there's any precedence really for the, just the scale and pace of transformation that's taking place. Yeah, and I mean, I've certainly asked that question before of many people is we've got Fisherman's Bend coming our way and it's like, we're, okay, is if this is going to be a fantastic uh, development, point to where, you know, p- point to the precedence. Where, yeah. where else have we done something at this scale well? And and I think there are people cautiously optimistic that we can do it well. Yeah. Uh, but there is also a lot of people worried about those kinds of big projects. I think the sheer scale of somewhere like Fisherman's Bend means if you don't get a lot of settings right really early in the piece, you, you, you know, you... The, the flow-on effects that are screwed up all the way through. And I think, you know, dare I say, there are lots of lessons to learn in Docklands about, you know, how to how you sort of you know, start with the wrong assumptions or the wrong priorities and then it doesn't really work for anyone. And I think that's, you know, been part of the, the challenge for Docklands over the years. And talk to us, if you can, a little bit more about the Collingwood Arts Precinct because I think it's a really interesting idea in a place that's um, historically, at least over the past few decades, had a really thriving, strong artistic community. But obviously with rising property prices, large-scale development, a lot of people are being priced out of that area. A lot of the, those artists have had to move out, which is a fam- familiar story yeah. in, in any, any city. But how do you see the Collingwood Arts Precinct kind of figuring in that mix? So yeah, to understand the context, I mean, it, it's, it's an initiative that's come through successive governments and had the support of successive state governments. It's the old Collingwood TAFE site, and I think uh, Creative Victoria and the state government wisely identified that uh, there was a lot of pressure on arts and creative organisations in that area. They're, they're being forced out. They're gradually, you know, moving further and further afield, or some of them just can't sustain. You know, they, they break up or they move or whatever happens. And so, uh, you know, it is an example of a bit of foresight. It's an example of the sort of thing that you hope that governments would do more of and see the value of more in that they, you know, recognise they own this old Collingwood tech site. We've got three buildings adjacent to where Circus Oz is in Collingwood. Um, it's about 6,500 square metres of space and the the challenge or the, the, the task over the next couple of years is to convert that space so that it's a 
you know, fully functional creative precinct in perpetuity. So supporting artists, creative organisations, um, you know, creative industries of different kinds and also opening that space up to the community because if you look at that neighbourhood, I think, you know, people who don't know the site, this is great central courtyard, beautiful trees, really nice. We'll actually, we'll be open for open house. I should get that plug in next week if people want to come through and see it in the state that it's in. Um, but you realise that there's this sort of hidden little gem of public space as well as these um, spaces around it that, that can be art spaces. So uh, it's a chance to provide, lock in some space for generations in a community that got very few parks, can't afford, the price of space means that um, artists and creatives can't afford to be there. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the thinking is about how do you design it, how do you set it up, how do you, also how do you convert, and this goes back to one of those sort of heritage balance questions, how do you take a building that was designed to be a school and has all the properties that go with being a school and turn it into something that actually works for a different set of uses? And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of little decisions that need to be made along the way and a lot of balances between heritage and historical use and trying to be forward thinking as well. Mm. And, and practically what are the kinds of impacts that heritage is having on, on the planning there? Um, so some of, the, some of them are fairly bright. Like one of the things we want to do, uh, and this will come out in our plans the next couple of months, one of the things we want to do is to make a new entrance into the building um, and uh, the main building on, on Johnson Street. And so that facade is heritage listed, so putting a new entrance in there um, will allow the public to walk straight in off Johnson Street into this great courtyard which we think completely unlocks the site but you know there's, we've got to jump through some heritage hurdles to do that and I think that's an appropriate balance. Um, there's some other you know some funny little things like we have the, the Keith Haring mural uh, which is on the highest, I think the highest level on the state heritage register. And, uh, you know, one of the very practical day to day consequences is I can't put shelves up in my office because it's within this eight metre protection zone, um, back into the building, uh, from the mural. And so, uh, it's one of those things that does create this sort of, sometimes I think one of the challenges is uh, I wrote about that. I did a book a couple of years ago called Creating Cities based on the experience of Renew. And, you know, one of the little observations in there is that if you're not careful about thinking about how processes work, you end up in this catch-22 where in order to do anything, you have to spend a lot of money. If you have to spend a lot of money, it means that... Um, uh, the only people who can afford to do it are people who want to make a lot of money or intend to make a lot of money. So I think this, you know, the Balancing Act has always been about how can you be a bit lateral about that and how can you um, allow heritage uh, regulations to work in a way that, that allows people with limited resources to be able to use buildings as well. Yeah, because you see, um, I mean, I, I think I saw a headline on Domain over the weekend. It's like this old, you know, I don't know if it's a listed house, but this heritage house was knocked down and now the new owners can sell it for twice the price because they don't need to deal with the complexity of the site. We should remind people, um, Marcus Westbury's with us. He's with the Collingwood Arts Precinct. He's the CEO over there of that redevelopment. And uh, speaking this week, tomorrow night, in fact, at the Battle for Our Buildings at the Wheeler Centre, really interesting sounding discussion with a whole range of different people. I wonder, I mean, are you getting information from what happened down at the convent, which is a similar uh, Abbotsford convent, um, if people don't know, that was... Uh, I mean, a convent first, but then it became sort of a, a TAFE university mm. site for a while. It's right there next to the Collingwood Children's Farm and it's been re redeveloped as a whole range of different, filling a whole range of different yeah. needs, including um, studio space and the like. I mean, has that informed you at all? Yeah, we've had a good dialogue. I mean, the con convent is probably a reasonable, it's not in terms of exactly what we want to do, but in terms of how the process has worked, it's probably a pretty close model to the way we're working um, at, at our site. And I think uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few bits to learn. I think the heritage 
uh, constraints on the convent are probably a bit greater than they are on our side by virtue of it being, you know, there's much older buildings as a general rule and ones that are a bit more, a bit more, a bit more precious and a bit more fragile. Like at the buildings that we're working in, a lot of them are quite robust. You know, they were old warehouses and, and, workshops and school spaces so it's a bit easier to sort of you know drag things around and knock things into them than, than spaces that were part of a convent um but it's yeah the the the, it, the examples of where I, th- I think what what both projects have in common is this need to try and find a model whereby the community can uh have some trust and ownership and management in the ongoing active use of spaces that are that are valuable to the to that community and uh you know the model that we've got is is not dissimilar to the convent in the way it's going to work and i mean looking at your past experience you were very successful in establishing a a really thriving arts community in newcastle having returned there and sent there are a lot of vacant buildings many years ago was there one thing or, or a catalyst that that has allowed that particular city to to really take hold and 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 flourish uh, look, I, I know, I mean, the work that we've been doing, uh, I can't talk about everything else that's been going on around it so much, but the work that we've been doing has really been about coming up with low-cost ways that people with creative ideas can get into buildings and um, use them for something, you know. And sometimes those buildings are heritage-listed, which create really interesting constraints. Like, how do you, um, you know, one of, our, one of our major projects, which just finished up a few months ago, uh, was the conversion of an old uh, David Jones department store that would have been heritage-listed into, you know, a basically a space for local makers and artisans. And in order to do that, we basically realised that the only way to do it was to not fix anything to the building. So the, we subdivided the entire building, put up all these things, and then if you go around the back, it's um, it's a theatre prop. You know, it's like sitting on sandbags and you know, it looks like <laughs> one of those Wild West movie sets. Uh, and that was, that was the ingenious way to get around actually having to uh, physically change the building in any way which time would not to mention money time resources all of those things that would have been required to be able to get in there uh, just wouldn't have allowed us to do so you know we've done renew newcastle's done i think we're up to 81 properties that have been reopened in newcastle and about 250 projects and uh every single one of them has sort of approached it from the angle of what can we do with very limited resources and how do we work our way around it and that's i mean the way that you um you know got around that is is one method and then the way that others get around it is to knock the building down which is what we've seen yeah. and I wonder in in that sense um you know thinking about the the Corkmans in in Carlton which really horrified a lot of yeah. people that it, that that could happen and that it's still kind of unresolved as well uh whether the heritage controls are one too lenient too too tight you know I think I I, I sort of got this I, I always have this general theory that you of like proportionality basically if you want to do something small it shouldn't be that hard and if you want to do something big it should be really difficult you know and I think uh, yeah, it should be you know the bar should be a lot higher and if you want to do something that can't be undone you know the the, the bar should be really 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 high um, and I you know I think it's a disgrace I mean there's a huge incentive for developers to uh, you know, acquire heritage sites essentially because of the cost of, you know, because the cost of doing anything with them will be, uh, higher. And then if you ignore the, ignore the rules and pay the fines and get away with it, um, you know, th- th- I think w- what that has been is a good case in the community backlash reminding everyone that we need to really t- toughen up the laws and, mm. and stop people from yeah. getting away with this because it's pretty easy to just create some shell companies, pay some fines and then, you know, have it. And also that, that, you know, we do rely on private landowners and property owners to maintain our cultural heritage because not all of these buildings are in public hands, no. are they? No, and I think that's that's also a balancing act. Is like how do you how do you sort of encourage 
you know, I don't think it's necessarily practical or even desirable that every heritage building is is publicly owned. You know, I think um, that's no, uh, well, there's a lot of you know, it, it uh, there's you know, you, you're going to end up you know, you're on a bit of a hiding to nothing. But how do you actually get uh, good systems in place that encourage private owners to do? good things and, and preserve and respect heritage. And well, I'm also, I think the other thing about heritage is that you get in this very sort of binary thing where you sort of got this handful of like iconic or very old buildings that are really worth preserving. And I guess I'm starting to worry a bit more about what, what we're losing just in terms of the variety of, of streetscape and space, you know, stuff from the mid 20th century now, which uh, I've really grown to appreciate and uh, isn't quite old enough or isn't quite, uh, uh, you know, revered enough to put heritage orders on. And then one day we're going to wake up and it's all going to be gone. Mm. And something really significant, I think, about the character of our cities is going to be lost and forgotten. Well, if you want to join the conversation, you can tomorrow night. Um, we just checked online. It looks like there's still tickets available to the battle for our buildings. And if you've got questions or contributions to make, that discussion includes Marcus Westbury, who's been with us this morning. He's uh, currently the CEO of the Collingwood Arts Precinct, but wears many other hats as well. And uh, that's uh, taking place uh, tomorrow night. And I didn't look at the time, but you can check out the Willis Centre website. It's probably about 6 o'clock or something. Bit after 6, it, I think. 6.15. Yeah. There you go. After work o'clock if you're in the CBD. And, and out at open house too. Yeah, that comes sounds... through the site uh, down in Collingwood. Yeah, fantastic. So people can just turn up to that one, yeah. can they? Yeah. So Circus yep. Oz and the Collingwood Arts Precinct are both open, and we'll be giving some behind the scenes tours so you can understand the the scale of the task ahead of us over the next couple <laughs> of weeks. <laughs> you just say behind the scenes, and I'm right there. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. It's always good to have you on. And it's widely known that women get a much smaller benefit from superannuation than men do. This has been apparent since super became compulsory in the early 1990s, and even before that, when super wasn't even available to women at all. A new report into women's super out through per capita shows again how skewed the system is. Uh, They found that today women are retiring on average less than half the super as men and uh, Emma Dawson is exec director at Per Capita and I suppose before we talk about how difficult it is Emma for older women to live on their modest retirement earnings why is it such a hard nut, nut to crack this one 25 years into superannuation when we know how it's playing out? Yeah it's a great question I think um, it comes down to superannuation isn't the only system that's failing women um, it's part of a, a general problem we have with the way that our society is structured the way that our working culture is structured and the way that uh, our home and family lives uh, occur and have occurred for you know generations um, things have changed women have been in the workforce in great numbers for you know 30 40 years and and, and working class women long before that um, you know I always try to point that out that the idea that women have only worked in the last half a century is a very middle class idea um, but but uh, structures haven't kept pace and they haven't changed to accommodate the realities of people's working lives. So a lot of um, of our working structures, of the way that our, our families operate, everything from childcare to, you know, expectations of, of, of mums helping out at school, um, but particularly in this instance, the superannuation system is still predicated on the assumption that we have a male breadwinner model of, of the family and it's, it's just ain't true. And 25 years ago wasn't even really that long ago. So, no. so how did we get it wrong at the 
right outset that we relied on this male breadwinner model that, well, I mean, maybe, wasn't the reality. Maybe it has something to do with the way that Canberra operates, the way that government operates, and um, uh, even to this day, of course, the, um, the, uh, the halls of power are not just at the elected representative level but um, in the public service as well, still very dominated by um, some old-fashioned thinking, I think, and dominated by um, people that, that do live a more um, traditional uh, life. Um, but there's no excuse for it. You're absolutely right. It's only 25 years ago. Um, and that's not that long ago. And people in our in our forties were were entering the workforce at that time. Um, I certainly have worked pretty much full time since I left school. Um, and uh, so the design was, you know, arguably wrong from the get go. Um, it was it was predicated, I think, on on traditional superannuation structures that had come through the public service and were very agitated for by the unions and, and look the achievement of universal superannuation overall is a very very good thing. Yeah I was going to say I mean we you know this is not to sound ungrateful or no. whatever because I mean it is a system that is valuable mm. for Australia and I think that the idea that we can all retire on a pension I mean that's evaporating isn't it yeah. but but we have like right now a, a, a kind of generation of women in their, in their 60s and, mm. and 70s and many still working yeah. many retiring on far less than what they need but yeah. the pension certainly is not going to keep no. them at a lifestyle um, that that they would you know that would be even considered modest well, and no, in many cases not even adequate and we, we did a report last year on the adequacy of the age pension and found there that the greatest uh, disadvantaged group were, were single women who didn't own their own home and whether that was because of relationship breakdown or obviously women um, statistically live longer than men so there are a lot more widows than widowers um, in society but the, the, the greatest number of people that are really struggling on the age pension as well tend to be older women. The fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia is women in their 50s and 60s. Um, and it, So it's not just to do with the design of superannuation or the design of the pension. It's really about how we value what has traditionally been seen as women's work. So caring work, um, low-paid jobs uh, tend to be in the caring sector or um, retail services. This report was done in partnership with the Australian Services Union who represent some of the most low-paid workers and they are overwhelmingly women um, in our society so it's to do with how we value work if you look at um say uh, the equivalent qualifications and in traditional um, industries for men, ma- males and females a, a metal worker with a cert, cert three qualification earns around three times per hour what a cert three qualified childcare worker earns and those tend to be you know very gender dominant gen- gender um differentiated industries so that's a big part of the problem and so there's, there's a whole lot of things going on in the mix that are that are resulting in women having um less than half the, the mm. amount of money um in their super when they retire that than men do but i mean given that we've we've heard a little bit about super at the federal level lately in terms of superannuation tax concessions being changed for the super wealthy and also people being able to dip into their super to to purchase property but we haven't heard much about the gender pay gap yet we've known that it's been this way for quite some time yeah why is that one of the reasons for us doing this report is to try to draw some attention to that issue um so it is we we certainly when we hear about super we tend to hear about those exact issues that you've just mentioned oh how much can people put in, you know, the $1.6 million cap. I mean, the, the number of people that are likely to see a super balance of $1.6 million is pretty minuscule. So I would argue we're having the wrong debates around super. These things are important and, and the ta- 
tax concessions definitely need to be looked at. Um, but again, uh, the super industry, um, superannuation industry, the finance industry, the people that tend to understand how these things work tend to be very high paid people and they, and they are aware of issues that affect them directly and so that dominates the conversation. This report's trying to give a voice to the voiceless in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you speak to 4,000 people, you yeah. use Hilda data, which mm-hmm. is, you know, really reputable data to, to pull it together. But I wonder, you know, I said it's a hard nut, nut to crack. Well, I mean, let's start trying to crack it yeah. because I think you, you spoke about caring roles. I mean, if one partner's working and the other's not and these caring roles are important Mm. we know we need them Mm -hmm. uh so you know is there ways that 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 household income can be distributed across numerous super you know what what is it what are some of the solutions those those things are already possible and a lot of couples are doing that for themselves already um again then you run into issues of of you know um of inequality in other areas where perhaps a very um high-paid man has a wife at home and has managed to split their super and, and so they're not paying, you know, um, the kind of tax... Or oh, the motivation isn't to look That's after right. one <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> um, so you have to be very careful about how you do these things. We've made a series of recommendations. The authors of the report, I, I should, you know, be very clear, I didn't write this report myself. It was done by David Hetherington and, and Warwick Smith from our team. Um, although, you know, I was obviously, as a woman, very interested and as the exec director, um, kept poking my nose in to, to look at the recommendations. Um, but we've made a few recommendations such as that you know, people on carers allowance, for example, because we're not always talking about women looking after children. Women also disproportionately care for elderly relatives, parents um, and other relatives and friends. Um, So people on carers allowance should get a superannuation payment from the government as part of that allowance. We think that's something worth looking at. We think that um, the paid parental leave scheme should include super payments for women. Um, We're recommending that employers and unions bargain for um, superannuation payment for people on parental leave or carers leave Um, and so that that can go some way towards reducing that the gap in that that time when people are taking time out of the workforce and they're not accumulating super at all but you know what you referred to in terms of um of income splitting uh, across across the family most couples do do this um uh, i know that um if currently if if a couple separates or divorces then that uh, and one partner superannuation balance is much bigger than the other that's taken into consideration as a part of any settlement but often what you'll find and we found some of the respondents in the um the qualitative part of this survey said this is a common thing a woman will often take the share a share of the family home uh, rather than superannuation in order not to disrupt the children's lives and so they then um, do not have that super balance that the man can go on and, and continue to have and it accumulates property is a great investment but actually the um, you know the compound interest on super is, is pretty effective over time so women do find themselves disadvantaged if they make that decision as well um, it's a wicked problem we the recommendations in in our report won't solve it um, completely but we think there's a number of measures that should be taken so that we're at least starting to address these issues if you just tuned in we're speaking with Emma Dawson, the Executive Director of Per Capita, all about their new report, Not So Super for Women. And, I mean, how well do people understand superannuation and and what their money is actually going into? Because I know a lot of young people in particular who have worked in a lot of different casual jobs and, and so on might not even know exactly where their money is or what it's doing or how much they have. It's a huge problem, Dylan. Um, a lot of people really don't understand the super system. They don't understand, for example, that if you earn less than $450 a month uh, and a lot of women working part-time will find themselves in that position, uh, then you don't. The, your employer doesn't have to pay super at all. Um, as you've 
alluded to, people can often get into their 30s and 40s and find themselves with half a dozen or a dozen different superannuation accounts. Uh, it's up to the individual to, to monitor that and to combine their super, and it's a lot easier. We're making it a lot easier, though, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, now you can kind of just do it on the ATO site, can't you? can jump onto site, the ATO you? site and do it, um, but there's not a lot of information out there unless you go looking for that. So another um, part of the recommendations that we've put in this report is, is that um, employers and unions should provide financial literacy training for people so that they understand the system a little bit better. Uh, we also think that some of the fee structures should be looked at. So, for example, if uh, a woman does take a year out um, on maternity leave, for example, that um, perhaps there could be a fee suspension during that time so that the super balance isn't being eaten up by fees. Um, and a lot of the, the um, compulsory parts of superannuation, such as offering um, uh, income protection insurance, which is often a, a, an opt-out on a lot of super accounts, well, a lot of young people might not feel that they need that. It might be much more important when you're in your 30s or 40s and you've got dependents, um, but in your 20s you might not want to pay fees for um, income protection. And, we, and, and Kelly O'Dwyer at the moment is talking about things like that, mm-hmm. sort of allowing people to opt out of things that they can't yeah. at, at the moment opt out of, especially if they've got multiple accounts and That's they're paying right. for things they don't actually need. Yeah. So is, those are good measures. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, is there an appetite for reform at, with this government that we have at the I moment? I think so, but I think, again, they're looking at those um, at those issues, which are important, but don't go to the heart of what this this report is about, which is the system, systemic bias in the system um, against women and low-income earners and part-time workers and people that aren't uh, in that very traditional um, work from the time you leave school or university right through to retirement in a, in a pretty much a full-time capacity. Uh, the system works for people like that. It doesn't work so well for people that have to take time out of the workforce or work part-time or work casually for whatever reason. Yeah, and we're telling young people at the moment that you're going to have 17 careers. That's right. 17 different that. super accounts, <laughs> gaps between them, um, you know, and the, and the, the, the the whole way super works, of course, is that it's designed that you're regularly feeding in your compulsory payments and that your lump sum is accumulating compound interest. And if you've got a lot of different accounts chewing up a lot of different fees, you've got six months out of the workforce here, 12 months out of the workforce there, then the, those things add up over time to reduce your ultimate retirement savings. Thank you so much for coming in and um, it's always good to speak with you and if people want to find the report it's easy to it's just on the per capita website and Emma Dawson is the exec director and we'll catch you again Thanks so much uh, Having just premiered on Vice Rage in the Cage is a new, new documentary that charts the experience of teenagers in regional Victoria as they prepare for a burnout competition amidst all the expected tyre popping and smoke laden bravado of the scene the film paints a really sensitive picture of how the sport helps those involved to navigate mental health health issues, difficult family dynamics and the challenge of finding your place in a regional community where job prospects are increasingly scarce and uncertain. The film is the first in Vice's Australiana series and to talk more about it we have here in the studio with us Andrew Kavanagh, the director of the episode. Welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm always interested with documentary documentary makers how you find the talent that's featured because all the young people that you speak to are so well-spoken and really insightful about how they came to the scene and, and, and what they get out of it. How did you enter this, this scene in, in Victoria? Well, I suppose, first of all, we went to some burnout events and just started talking to people and, and meeting people. And through that, we found out that uh, there was a Young Guns sort of category for under 18s and we thought that sounds interesting just kids in cars generally sounds like a weird um thing to be doing so we started looking into that and then and then we um found out that there were sort of five or six kids in Gippsland competing in this competition so we went and met most of them and um it's just about 
asking questions and being inquisitive and not going in with preconceived ideas of what you're going to to do and through that you find kids who sort of have interesting backstories and um and you sort of gravitate towards that it's interesting because I, I definitely did have preconceived ideas about even watching a film about a burnout scene in, in regional Victoria. I thought, oh, that's something I, you know, not a scene that I'm familiar with that I'd really want to get involved in. But the way that you approach it is um, really humanising and shows a really sensitive side to these people who are involved out there. Mm. Well, yeah, we don't want to, you never want to make fun of your subject. So you have to go in and actually be genuinely inquisitive and sort of find that human element of it you just don't you don't want to just hold up because i I guess when you hear about this documentary you'd be expecting pretty much bogans i suppose that's that's what people have told me that they are they're expecting and you don't want to just um validate that stereotype you want to inspect further and thankfully there was actually more to this scene um and there were some great stories and um just really um great kids Mm. Yeah, I loved the characters. And I think, yeah, it's so two-dimensional to just look at, you know, so-called bogans. Like, Mm. it's just, you know, that's relatively boring, isn't it? But Mm. these characters are are beautiful. But, I mean, before we hear more about who who you kind of focused on... That burnouts has become a sport was news to me. And I must say, I spent the whole time going, Oh my God, but look what they're breathing in, you know, that like so much smoke and toxic mm. kind of stuff. But it genuinely is a sport with skills and commentators and it's big. Mm. It's big. It's only in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's we, it's just one of those bizarre things that could only happen in Australia and New Zealand, I think. Like, um, so that that's where the sport's really taken off in the antipodes. Um, but yeah, I was surprised. It's so loud, and the smoke <laughs> is so invasive and full on. And uh, we rocked up in this twelve seater white van, um, wearing like masks <laughs> to to the event, like those little sort of masks. Particular masks that are going to do only a little bit dust well, masks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, by the end, they'd sort of blown off and become lost. It's it's. It's uh, and, and we were all our faces were all black and everyone's it's it's kind of a vision of hell but people find it so beautiful and it is beautiful. Yeah, like the well, smoke. the calm. I mean, they talk about a calming feeling when you're in these in these vehicles doing doing burnouts. But mm. there is also technique, like the idea that you know you get what two minutes or something on the pad, mm. um, and when you you don't want to blow your tires up too early. But if you don't blow them up, then you kind of haven't done it right, and and you're not going to win. So you've got this really tense moments where people are trying to blow the two back tires but at the right moment it's quite scientific i I actually say that really genuinely like it's it's an amazing feat to try and do all those things in such a short period of time absolutely and and people like yeah like if you blow your tires if if you go too hard too early and blow your tires off right at the beginning then no one's going to see your burnout because you've you've done it too early yeah so it's it's a real timing thing so these guys that they are skilled drivers these people yeah and these these kids are, you know, they can drive better than a lot of adults, I'd mm. say, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just driving, though, is it? Because all these kids are involved in, in modifying their cars and, and, and fixing their cars once they've gone to one of these events and, and blown the engine up, blown the tyres up, and then they set about fixing it. And they're really, um, I guess, in, in tune with the way that cars work and the mechanics of a car. And there's one, I don't want to reveal too much about the episode because it's, um, I think, a tick over 30 minutes long and I want people to be surprised when they when they see it. But um, there's a father 
and his um, his daughter who work on their cars together. And it's a really touching moment, particularly seeing a female so passionate about working mm. on cars. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, we we she's one of the strongest characters in in it, I think. And um, Kaya is her name. And I mean, not to give away too much, she wants to be a mechanic. She's come from a really difficult family background of, uh, you know, people in her family, her, her dad being addicted to drugs and, and so forth and getting off that because of the burnout scene. And there's this real redemptive part to her and his story. And it's, mm-hmm. it's quite touching. Yeah. And that's one of the serendipitous things that can happen when you're making a documentary that you just don't expect to learn mm-hmm. about someone and her story. The, and the feedback from people who have seen the doco is her story is really quite touching and um, I wish her the best. And she's a really sensitive person and mm. she has a lot going on in her life. And there's the other guy um, who really has avoid, avoided jail, I suppose, because he was doing burnouts where he probably shouldn't be doing them. And and there is that sort of other side of this where if you provide a space for people to enjoy blowing their cars up, they're not going to do it on the public streets. Yeah, they're going to do it any one, one way or the other. So uh, why not give them legal skid pads so they can do that? And that, uh, that guy you're referring to, CJ, he is just an amazing guy. I'm going to see him later today, actually. I think he deserves his own TV show. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, he, he was pretty much destined for jail because he just couldn't stop doing these burnouts in the street. And now, thankfully for these competitions, he's not in jail, but he still gets to blow his car up. But it wasn't about being a lawbreaker. He actually really enjoys doing burnouts. And as um, Kaya's dad says at some point, like, well, tennis players have tennis courts and golf golfers have golf courses. Mm. You know, we've got pads. Mm. And without them, then how can we ever do our sport in a legal manner, you know? Yeah, he, he, he's point. campaigning for more skid pads. Mm. Um, maybe if he had a skid pad uh, in every neighbourhood, then... Uh, Not next to know. my house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just off Chapel Street, maybe, then just like, oh, that, around there. Awesome. Great. <laughs> but, but there is a, a demarcation that um, that I think it's Kai's dad makes between Hoons, as he says, who are doing this out in the street and they're uh, criticised by, you know, mainstream media and, and so on, and him and and the people he's associating with who are who are car enthusiasts so they don't see themselves as as you know criminals or or disruptive to society or to their community but they see they have a passion and they want to be able to to exercise that passion yeah and there's this sort of world that's grown around the sport there's there are there's burnouts australia magazine like there's a whole magazine for it there's other publications like street machine who've been supportive of the doco who um you know they publish a lot about burnouts there's there's uh, one of the kids in the documentary, he started his own playing cards business with all the famous uh, burnout people on it so you can buy his cards. So it's a culture that's developing and it's kind of exciting, yeah. But, I mean, it's not... In, in some in some ways, it's not so far away from what are those events with the cars with the really big tyres that run over other vehicles, and like there are other kinds of sports like this. Um, I suppose what sets this one apart is that it's just so toxic with its fumes. And Yep, it, it, I guess... It's like I say, only in Australia. I think it's there's an absurdity to this sport that's, but that you can only and you can only understand it when you're actually there watching it. They they're not travelling anywhere, they're not racing, they're just making these beautiful like plumes of smoke that everyone loves to watch and trying to blow their tires off their car or maybe blow their car up. That's that that's a big thing as well. If you blow your car up, that people get very excited 
blowing your engine. Um, what do they say? Rods or rims? And there's hand signals like that yeah. go with it, with arms out the side of cars. Like there is a culture that is very strong in this sport. Yeah, they call that the, those uh, limiter fingers because it's going with the, the limiter in the car. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I didn't crazy. pick that up, but that's, <laughs> that makes so much sense. Yep. Yeah, and these people are fanatics, absolute fanatics. They just that's their. And, and I mean, that's, that's what makes it kind of redemptive. It's that thing, that all consuming passion that these people have. Yeah. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Andrew Kavanagh. He's a director with Vice and we're speaking about the new uh, documentary, the first episode in Vice's Australiana series called Rage in the Cage. And I mean, when you're working on documentaries like this one and, and other ones for this series, is it at all difficult to, to move away from these characters that you get so, so close to and get to know after working with them so closely? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's because you feel, um, a duty to present them. You get quite close with them and you want to present them in a truthful way, but also in a, a good way. But, ho- and hopefully, um, the good way is the truthful way because you don't want to be untruthful or, or take the Mickey, it's a, it's a Mickey out of someone. Um, so yeah, that's tough. And then afterwards managing their expectations because the difference between how someone views themselves and how other people view them is, you know, always, there's always a gap mm. there. So when you see yourself in a documentary, you're like, did I say that? You know, so, so managing their expectations is hard. Um, but thankfully most people have been really happy with the way they've been presented. There was one guy, uh, who's hasn't been so happy and I've just had to cop that abuse, but yeah. It's always I've, a challenge though, isn't I'm it? I'm going to guess who that is, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, I mean, what is Australiana? Like what, what's going to fit in this series? So it's, it's trying to sort of give a more diverse representation of our national identity. I call it their, their anti-neighbours. It's like the antidote to neighbours, that sort of white Australia, suburban street sort of thing. So, where, you know, this might be a fairly, the, the burnouts scene is a sort of niche, uh, sport on the fringes of our culture. Um, in the next episode, um, we look at, um, queer indigenous culture up on the Tiwi Islands. Um, so it's really giving a broad representation of who we are as, as a nation, really. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, vice is big, you know, internationally. Are these likely to be seen all over the world, these dockers? Yeah. Yeah. They'd be, um, likely to be viewed in our broader international audience. And hopefully they, they do uh, get, you know, lots of views. Well, you can catch uh, Rage in the Cage. Actually, premiered on on SBS Viceland last week. You can watch it online now at vice dot com. It's a really fascinating doc. I would recommend it to anyone um, who you know doesn't have much knowledge of the the burnout scene as I didn't. Thanks so much for coming in, Andrew. No problem. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Me. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. dot 